Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fifth series, we'll be talking about rhythm, how it forms in us, how we carry it, and where it can lead us. The notion of an intimacy coordinator is still somewhat new in the worlds of film and television, but its role, choreographing the rhythms of an intimate scene, as intricately as a fight scene or a dance scene, is growing increasingly important. One of its pioneers and principal practitioners is Eater O'Brien. She has worked on productions such as Normal People, I May Destroy You, Sex Education and Gentleman Jack. She joined me from her home in Kent to discuss her work, physical rhythm and how she moved from dancing to acting to intimacy. My mum is from Cookstown, County Tyrone in Northern Ireland, and she was brought up on a farm. And my dad is from Clonmel and Tipperary, and his dad was a horse trainer, but he'd hurt his back um, and so couldn't continue to work in that field. So my dad's family came across to England um, when my dad was around 10. And my mum was the eldest of 10, and she did her midwifery training. No, yeah, she did her SRN, her nurse training. And then she went on to do her midwifery training. And to complete that, she had to come to London. And so, and then my parents met at the Irish Dancers in Brixton. They settled in Bromley. So I was born in Bromley, but we used to go across, particularly to my mum's home, um, to the farm every summer for the whole of the summer. You know, we'd be there with our Uncle Pat, wellies on at half past six in the morning, out with him and the dog nip, rounding up the cows and coming in and helping Pat. We thought we were helping do the um, milking morning and night. It was a, a great part of our childhood and, you know, absolutely embedded in who we are and, um, you know, our whole childhood and our whole identity. I'm Well, I actually tried to do my ancestry and I'm basically peasant Irish stock through and through on both sides. <laughs> a good, a good heritage, I think. Um, so that's quite a, a different two sides of your life, I guess, Bromley versus rural Ireland. Can you describe Bromley for those who, who aren't familiar with that area? So Bromley is a suburb of London. It's um, commuter belt, urban, and yes, very different. Um, my mum used to try and get us out to do walks as often as she could. And my mum worked as a midwife and she would work at weekends on night duty so that she could work and then sleep while my dad was looking after us. And my dad was a, a surveyor and architect. So, yes, we had a like very typical suburban life um, in Bromley. Your mother's job as a midwife must have given you quite a unique perspective on on bodies, I'm imagining. Well, obviously it's there. It's there in the background and that interest in that taking care you know, in that whole cycle of birth, which is such a beautiful thing, isn't it, to, you know, to engage your life in. And my mum would always be receiving presents from, you know, really grateful mothers who had um, had a, a, a beautiful experience um, with her delivering their babies. But for me, more body-wise, I actually, my mum wanted us to do Irish dancing. And um, this was in 68, 69. There wasn't any Irish dancing. River dance hadn't happened. What she did find was a lady called Miss Handel in the hall in Hayes teaching ballet. So I actually started learning ballet from the age of three. And then the school that I happened to go to, um, Holy Trinity Convent, happened to have this most amazing ballet teacher called Madeline Sharp. 
and she was at the time the top children's teacher for the Royal Academy of Dancing. She had taught Beryl Gray in the 1940s. And so body connection, body awareness, I would say that that for me, you know, well, apparently when I left Miss Handel at four to go to school, Miss Handel said to my mum that, you know, that I had, there was some talent there. And then having met this lady, Madeline Sharp, and she was already about 74 when I started being trained by her as a little kid of five. Truly, truly incredible, beautiful, stunning um, woman who just has such an elegant and connected um, way with her, with how she spoke to us, as you know, particularly as little children at five. You mentioned how your first teacher had had picked up on a talent that you had. How did that feel to you? Were you aware of, of a physical talent or a particular thing that you had maybe that your contemporaries didn't? at such a young age no but I just loved dancing I just had a love of dance um and 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 in particular improvisation you know just put a piece of music on and and let me dance to it and that was that was my thing so that sense of just responding and moving and allowing the music to move me (gasps) then in the years when I teach um when I've been teaching movement to actors and um sort of working with some of the work of um, a practitioner called Grotowski And he says of an actor's training that there's two sides to it. One, that you are developing impulses, developing the actor being able to listen to the body and respond in the instant to those impulses. But the other side is to train the body with rigour, with precision, you know, with strength, with tenacity. And so that's that's that side of it. And again, as a ballet dancer, that's absolutely what you're doing. Your daily bar, you know, sort of training, fine tuning the whole body, but then also having that impulse and that connection to just listen in the moment and express. How did you feel when you were dancing that you didn't feel at any other point in your life? Oh, if you want to get a bit esoteric, that that spiritual connection of just flowing through, allowing allowing movement to flow through you through you and beyond you. And later, when you were working in intimacy scenes, is that a similar feeling that you're looking for in in the actors or is it something more about the the rigid control of the body? What, or is it the impulse or the rigid control? Well, actually, it's the same. And as I speak to you, I'm aware it's that sense of a clear boundary, a clear choreography allows for freedom. And that's what we're putting in place. You know, what we're putting in place is helping the industry to recognize that you do need a practitioner just like a choreographer if you're going to want someone to do a tango or a fight if you want someone to create those brilliant fights in fight club they have to be techniques have to be taught safety mechanisms or crash mats have to be put down and then the fight director is going to choreograph it so that it looks spontaneous but it's going to really give the storytelling that you want allow the actors to be safe and give the best fight possible it's exactly what we're doing with the intimacy guidelines, you know. So as far as freedom and impulse, part of the aspect when I'm sitting or I'm being present with the actor director read through and, you know, as they interrogate the script and then talk about, you know, what it's about, I'm body listening. I'm listening, I'm honouring, I'm making sure I'm listening to what the director wants, but also listening with my body, I'm listening with that antennae, that kinesthetic awareness of what, how the actors are speaking and the impulses that they have, because it's very important for me that I'm not imposing a choreography, but really taking from them, taking from what I see and then bringing that into, you know, what we choreograph. And then, from that bit sort of then we get up and agree touch so there's absolute clarity about what is in play and most importantly what's not in play and then we choreograph clearly with everything everywhere 
um, that is in the actors' agreement and consent of touch, there's an absolutely clear and agreed and rehearsed physical structure so that each and every time the director says action or you're on the stage and each and every night that the actor can be free within that and allows them for spontaneity and creativity and something different and something exciting each and every time. Let's backtrack to you and your ballet training. What happened to you next? Where did you go? Where did you carry your your love of dance? Um, so through Madeleine Sharp, she I had the, the joy of being able to audition for what was called the scholarship scheme at the Royal Academy of Dancing. So so I trained at the RAD twice a week, but it was quite elite and you got retested every year. So in the first year, there's about 90 um, scholars around the country. I got through to the fourth year when there was five of us left in the whole of the country. And then I didn't actually get through to the fifth year. So I was devastated, but it was sort of my um, scholarship teacher at the time, a lady called Jean Mitchell, then kept me under her wing, actually, and she was so generous. And um, that was the year Then I was doing my O-levels and then auditioning for for ballet schools. And then I sort of went to Bush Davis, which is a full-time ballet training, and then literally straight off the back of that came home and by then had sort of understood a little bit more about what my place was within the dancing world professionally. I'd actually gone round... Uh, Holland, Germany to audition for the different ballet schools and looked at the kind of ballet company I, that might get into and actually felt my spirit is is more than than this. And so I ended up going into musical theatre dancing and um, I got my first job, which was nine months with the dance group around Asia that got me my equity card, then came back and continued working as a, as a musical theatre dancer in the West End and on, on tour. When you first received the news that you hadn't got through to the next year of the scholarship... Was there even a moment when you questioned your relationship with you, with your body, with your, your relationship with dance? Or was it immediate that your, your scholarship teacher took you under her no, Absolutely, it was devastating. And actually, Madeleine Sharp at that point in time wrote to my mother and said, OK, now she needs to think about um, perhaps a training to be a dancing teacher rather than a dancer. And it was absolutely no, you know, absolutely not. It, it wasn't it absolutely at that point in time wasn't an option for me. And again, reflecting, you know, through talking to you that then that arc of then finally coming back through from then having a, a 10 year career as a musical theatre dancer. Um, and then I retrained and I did the so, so the the last big production that I did as a as a musical theatre dancer was in a production of On the Town. And I had the joy of dancing the Lonely Town Pas de Deux with a, the most incredible partner, a guy called John Patterson. I was so aware and we started opposite ends of, of, this, of this stage and we just had the stepping towards each other on a diagonal and then just reaching a hand out. And I had such a sense then of having the joy of really having a, a communion with the audience that each and every time of these two people coming together and expressing this dance of, yeah, of the power of that or the beauty of that. And that made me think, actually, I want to take this further and go into acting where I actually could take that sense of that really sculpting that emotional play. So, yes, I ended up um, auditioning for Bristol Ovic and then got into Bristol Ovic and did the two-year MA training and then ended up working for an actor as an actor for eight years. Tell me what you think the the spirit element was. And you said that when you toured the ballet schools, you realised your spirit wasn't that. It was more more than that, and that's why you went into musical theatre. Yes, that I you know that I wasn't at that point ready to then facilitate others. 
that I still had that desire and that that, that need to for me to express myself, for me to have the joy of being on stage and dancing and, you know, working with the amazing choreographers. Yeah, it was, a, you know, I've had a, a joyous time in those 10 years working as a musical theatre dancer. When you transferred to the Old Vic and became an actor, how different did it feel to stand on a stage to dance? Oh, yes, huge. And again, the narrative of who you are as a being. I, I had this epiphany that as a dancer, there's that sense of the essence and the purity of the technique and fundamentally, unless you're Sylvie Guillem, um, you're not that. You're not that degree of perfection. So you stand in front of the mirror and I am wrong because I am not that degree of perfection. And that permeates your whole being in your mindset as a dancer. Whereas as an actor, the shift is, am I truthful? You know, and there is no right or wrong to that. It just impacts. It, have, have I connected with the inner truth? And have I got the skill at, that, that that inner truth communicates out to an audience you know because also there's times that you think that you're being brilliant with your inner truth but actually you stayed in your own bubble and it and it's actually self-indulgent and it doesn't actually communicate so there was that and then also as a dancer there's that shorn up frame within which you know you have a technique and you you know you learn the choreography and then you let the impulse come through that but there's absolutely that frame of technique whereas as an actor actually you have to undo all of that and and at the beginning, oh, that's an uncomfortable place. To you're nodding as if you understand this. <laughs> no, I've seen it happen with people I know when they've retrained in, in in acting, and just to see them move into, and see the people who don't make it, and it's quite often because they don't, they're not able to undo something mm. or let go in a certain way. It's really fascinating to see. I think yeah, it is. It's and it's so uncomfortable. And then and then connection with voice because your voice has been what you express through your limbs and through your impulse and through your rhythm and through and um and then to literally find your voice and start playing with that same degree of artistry and sculpting and and play and how you place the voice all of that oh my goodness I didn't have a clue what was the first line you said on stage oh when I started wanting to go across to acting a friend of mine was an is an amateur dramatics group there's a couple of actually. So one was playing the third witch in Macbeth. So that might have been the first lines I said on stage, actually, um, at the Lost Theatre. How did it? How did it feel to hear your voice out there? It has it has been a huge a huge journey actually. At that point, it was I suppose with the innocence of just going into it in an amateur dramatic um, production. So you're just going in and playing. Um, when I went to Bristol Old Vic, the voice teachers said to me. We feel that how you speak, we think that you actually might be slightly deaf. Yes. So that was like, oh, goodness. So there was that sense of lack of clarity. And I actually went and did a thing called Tomatis, a guy called Alfred Tomatis. And he was asked to help an opera singer to find her pitch. And he discovered that the notes that she couldn't sing were the ones that she couldn't hear. And so he developed a way of testing the inner ear finding out what tones people could hear, but most importantly, what they couldn't hear. And then he would set up a program of, you would listen to filtered Gregorian chanting and Mozart. It's a two-week program. So you spend two and a half hours every day. Um, it's tailored, obviously, to your particular 
inner ear. And then in the second week, interestingly, you then listen and you do activities. It is a muscle that can be rewoken up and re-enlivened and reworked. And that's what they, the, the filtered music does. And that was an incredible awakening. And, I, and I'm absolutely certain that that had a really positive ripple effect on how I heard, how I listened to myself and then the tone that I could bring to my voice. But then that went hand in hand with the training. We had the most incredible voice teacher, Francis. And I remember when I first auditioned at Bristol Olvic, listening to his voice was just like listening to treacle, utterly, utterly beautiful. And then the other person at Bristol Olvic was this incredible teacher, um, or I should say guru by then. He had been at Bristol Olvic for 60 years. Guy called Rudy Shelley. The year that I was there, in the second year, he then passed away. So we just got the tail end of him, and he would shuffle in with his stick and with his bat, and he'd sit there. and um, And he was from Austria, so he hadn't lost his accent. and And he would give us his pearls of wisdom. And oh, Brian, blessed he was a little sunshine, and um, all this kind of stuff. And his two main statements were: um, "Don't listen to me. Go out and find for yourselves." And the other one was, squeeze your lemon. Do I want to know what, what that means or not? So and he would say, your lemon is the bit from your pee hole to your anus. And, um, and so what he was talking about was taking that in-breath. And then the out-breath comes from, the, from squeezing your lemon. Yes, the out-breath comes right from your pelvic floor from that journey so that sense of that in-breath dropping the voice down he says oh you girls you're always talking two octaves too high two tones too high you know and so that thing of dropping your voice you know finding actually where your voice truly sits dropping it down into your belly you know finding that depth and that resonance and then that in-breath and then squeeze your lemon so if you look on Facebook there is a squeeze your lemon society where there's all the people who have been to Bristol Olbic and still honor the great and mighty Rudy Shelley this is wonderful. You you said about the um, the years that you're a, a dancer. You looked in the mirror and and you were wrong. It's it's a state of you were constantly seeking that perfection, and then you had to learn a a different relationship with yourself as an actor about truth. Where are you now? Do you always have to fight to lose that feeling of pursuing perfection? I certainly have to fight that, to lose that feeling that am I wrong and checking myself, you know. So yes, and actually, interestingly enough, I've actually been, that's been really prevalent just recently in how I'm conducting running intimacy on set and, and you know, being so aware of that, taking care, taking care, you know, sort of we're saying as intimacy coordinators, what we're putting in place a structure to allow everybody to work safely. This sort of, it's, it's a very delicate journey. Again, I, you know, I'm teaching people across the globe. So I had a mentored session with some of my practitioners in Sydney this morning. And, you know, we, we are responding to all the practitioners within a production, you know, where serving the producers so that they can put in place best practice across the whole of their production. We're serving the directors. So then the directors have a very different hat on. They don't, they want us to support and facilitate their vision and that is always you know the narrative is that just like a choreographer and a stunt coordinator we're there to listen to the rec- to the director's vision and then help to put that into into practice um the actors have their different concerns their nervousness about oh you know what's going to be asked of me can i do this what am i okay with and then historically there has been that concern from an actor that have ever 
they say no in whatever way, shape or form. And that was sort of out there. Like, oh, you're an actor. You should be able to do, you know, you should be able to be naked. You should be able to have any degree of sexuality. And of course, that overrides or completely ignores the fact that just because someone's an actor in that role, you know, sort of everybody has a different relationship with their nudity, with what they're comfortable simulated sexual content wise, with where they're happy to be touched. And just because an actor, you know, what's asked them within a simulated sex scene, some of that might not be suitable for them, does not mean that they're not a brilliant actor or in fact the best actor for that job. And that's what we've helped to unpick with the role of the intimacy coordinator is helping that narrative to be understood. But anyway, but what I'm saying is that all of those roles are what we're facilitating and, and responding to and each of them have their different concerns. So within all of that, oh my goodness, you know, by the time you get to the end of a production, to journey through a production where everybody's been served, everybody's been taken care of well, is a very delicate thing. Yeah, and so so so, so that's part of you know this this gentle dance of um, holding space as an intimacy coordinator. In your own time as an actor, were you aware of being cast in particularly physical roles, and and if so, well, even if you weren't, how did you feel when asked to portray quite intimate moments? Well, this is it. You see, I was in my mid thirties then by the time I came out of drama school, so I didn't actually get offered any parts that asked me to be um in any intimate roles which in itself is interesting I guess you know that's that I think that's changed over the years hasn't it yes 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 I mean like for me there was a couple of times in my dancing career where um you know my agent put me up for a most beautiful Chanel advert you know where that was going to be panning along seeing rocks seeing rolling water over those rocks and then gradually as you pan along it's going to be in black and white and then you think it's still rocks but actually it's the form of a woman from behind with the buttocks and the, the waist and I remember sort of going this is utterly beautiful and I'd gone for the casting but I said I know that I would not be comfortable in doing this so but that's the kind of thing that I'm helping to invite actors to go what's okay for you what empowers you what are you happy with and then what's not okay for you and to be able to speak about that clearly and know that there's a professional structure that allows that to be considered and taken into to, um, account and then whatever's choreographed you know is is honoring their boundaries allowing them still to bring all of their skills as the actor to the scenes. So at what point did you decide to to move from acting to intimacy? Um, so the journey was, I was, you know, getting different acting roles, but I, my children were young. And then I was looking at, well, can I teach when I'm not working? And then as I was investigating that, I was looking at doing a PGC to teach acting. And then what I discovered was an MA in movement studies to train to be a movement director and a movement teacher. And suddenly it was like, ping, that's the thing that it brings together all my years of dancing, all my acting that um, channels it all into, you know, sort of the sharing of that embodiment, of that connection, of that rigour, of that idea of transformation. And, and also what I'd done in between dancing and acting, whenever I was out of work dancing, I used to do background work, working as a supporting artist. And as I started moving to acting, I was thinking, well, you can't do that as an actor. So I'd actually end, ended up training in holistic massage, on-site massage and reflexology. And then at one point was just going to go for being an alternative therapist and then had another epiphany and goes, no, I've got to go back to acting. So I had all that body knowledge as well. You know, you had to, through the, the holistic massage training, you have to sort of do your anatomy and physiology training. I had done a my level in biology anyway, and I loved understanding and learning about the body. 
So all of that as well absolutely helped to enhance my practice as a movement teacher and a movement director, having that precise body knowledge, the anatomical knowledge, yeah, and the knowledge of the different systems of the body. Yeah, so when I started doing the MA movement studies, I did I did just have a f- feeling of like, oh my goodness, I'm actually bringing together everything, the culmination of everything that I've experienced so far in my life, and it feels absolutely right. So from 2007, I then was um, working as a movement teacher and a movement director and I was able to say you know with my kids being young okay I can work from nine till one and then I've got to go off and do the school run so it actually worked really well during those years when my kids were young. I'm really struck by the echoes of your mum's career in your own the fact that you are by the side of somebody helping them through what can be a difficult and mysterious physical event Yes. Were you very aware of that all the way along? I I, ha- I have mused that, um, yes, that body awareness, that connection, that being the midwife, you know, helping someone birth something. And then my dad being an architect, that sculpture, that structure, I have actually felt the thought of those those two things coming together um, in, in what I'm embodying in how I'm, you know, so, yeah, in the intimacy work. So, so yes, yeah, so you asked about the shift from the acting. So, so actually what happened was then I was – working as a movement teacher, movement director, and then I wrote my own work and put that on. And then I was looking at going further and creating, I was interested in the dynamic of the flip side of the perpetrator. I've been in contact with um, a lady who set up what's called the Forgiveness Foundation. She was a journalist and in her conversations, particularly around the troubles in Northern Ireland, that she started looking, that she was aware that she was talking to the perpetrators of the bombings and then the victims of those bombings. And then thought goodness if only I could bring them together so they could understand and I got interested in her work and then wanted to look at creating a piece of work looking at that dynamic of the flip side of the perpetrator and the victim Um, and then it was in sort of researching that and then starting to, to invite some actors to come and explore that with me then I was looking at what practices and principles do I need to put in place in order to be able to create a really safe structure and a really safe rehearsal process for my actors to come and explore that work in a really safe way. And I did that work. I did the first round of research and development in the summer of 2014 and then applied to the Barbican Pit and did a second round the following summer in 2015. And in that process, one of my colleagues, Meredith Dufton, who's the head of movement at Mountview, said, please come and teach what you're developing. If she hadn't asked me to do that, I wouldn't be probably sitting here talking to you now because then it was the implementation of that work and then Meredith and I would continue you know at the end of the term sort of responding to the feedback from the students and discussing how the work went and then refining it and then I also co-worked with another of my sort of mentors a lady called Vanessa Ewan who's one of the senior lecturers in movement at Central and she had already had the inspiration of seeing a fight Um, director rehearsing a fight scene and going that's the kind of structure that we need for intimacy so again I co-worked with her as well again took you know had discussions with her work implemented it and again rediscussed it so it was very much a a development of practice and interrogation of practice over those years and then the students were saying to me this is great in drama school what happens when we're out there in the profession so then in early 2017 I started to speak to equity speak to the group of agents, the PMA, which was actually the first place that I shared, um, as it were, what became the intimacy on set guidelines and was trying to get people to, to to listen and take on board. And then in October 2017, 
the Weinstein allegations came out and then the subsequent Me Too and Time's Up movement and the codes of conduct that got created. And in that environment, then the industry, you know, within saying we cannot turn a blind eye or be predatory any longer, we must, you know, work with best practice and with respect. So then how do we do the intimate content well? And I was there ready to say, here's the intimacy onset guidelines. Prior to to Weinstein and Me Too, how readily was the industry taking up your suggestions? The narrative was, as I said, if you're an actor, you should be able to be naked. You should be able to do any degree of sexual content. The narrative of, you know, I was saying to, you know, because these student actors were saying, how can I have this conversation? And I was saying to, to the actors, you know, that you're offering a solution, not a problem. And that's very much, you know, what I'd learned from Vanessa Yu in that sense of listening to what the director needs. Um, and it's not being, you're not being a, a pain in the arse. And you're saying here, if I want to give you as an actor, the best of my skills in this intimate content that I can. And the way that I can do that is by working professionally through this structure, enable for us to really listen to your vision, serve your vision, put in place a professional structure to choreograph the intimate content so that we can work together yeah, to make the best work. So yes, um, but I knew that, well, that, that narrative was challenging. And the difference was in post-Weinstein with the Me Too and Time's Up movement was then that narrative was not just listened to, but invited. I do feel that the the pathway through to this for me has just been, again, you talk about being guided, you know, that, that the timing was just incredible. How different do you think it feels for a woman now on set? I, I am saying women, I realise that it's challenging for anybody to, to be doing any kind of intimate scene, but particularly post-Weinstein, post-Me Too, does it feel fundamentally different, do you think? Yes, absolutely. And it's good that you commented on um, anybody because it really is. Because, yes, it has fundamentally been, you know, sort of men being predatory to, to women. But um, but it, it really isn't just. And we really have to get away from that. You know, it really is anybody that has felt that they can be predatory to someone who's more vulnerable than themselves. And actually, you know, there's still that concern for making sure the lady is taken care of. But actually, this through that open communication, it's giving more of a opportunity for all of our men to be able to say, actually, no, I'm not happy in the choreography being changed instantly. Or actually, no, I'm, I don't, I'm not happy with that degree of nudity. So that's really important that we have that narrative of understanding it is allowing everybody to work with respect for everybody else um, and then to go ahead and make the best work. You've been... Uh, responsible for some of the most intimate scenes we've seen on television in recent years. Normal people, I may destroy you, sex education among them. How do you think that's changed viewers and our general attitudes towards intimacy? Yes, I mean, it's been receiving the, the, the feedback from the impact of these scenes has been truly incredible and, and you know, sort of mind-blowing in the ongoing ripple effect in people's real lives. So, yeah, I, it's been fantastic, the positive effect. I've had secondary schools contact me saying that they're going to be using the scene at the top of episode two to show to their young people in secondary schools as a positive first-time you know, sexual awakening of how to ask for consent, how to ask for protection while keeping that sense of that sexiness still present. I've had people from the queer black male community saying thank you for, for being seen and heard. Same with the queer female community in Gentleman Jack. And and that is just, all of that is, I'm astounded and, and humbled and 
and delighted and feel and we can continue to go further in helping to create really honest scenes that really you know truly reflect our the truth of our humanity like I was talking with a couple of different couples therapists mum was saying please can you show people with lumpy bodies and who wake up in the morning with smelly breath and they go oh I don't want to kiss you right now go and brush your teeth or another um, couples therapist was saying this idea of you know you, you kiss and within two seconds you can have penetrative sex you can't so things like that lifting the lid being able to bring more truth hopefully more fun, more humour, more honesty in all realms to the intimate content so that we continue creating really great scenes that resound and help us to be healthier in how we understand of who we are in our sexual expression and continue to, to have more people really feeling being seen in their intimate expression. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. The music for this series is by Laura James. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast Magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Subscribe.